From the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio, this is In Black America. I have a montage of memories, proud, proud ones, about CNN. It's hard to underscore one particular story because when you think back in 20 years, a lot has happened. We started out on the air in one century, we're in a new one. I would say collectively, my pride comes from the fact that more than 4,000 women and men at CNN around the United States, around the world, do the job day in and day out. We're responsible for reporting news that people can trust. Retired renowned television journalist Bernard Shaw. Shaw covered many monumental 20th century events from the Jonestown tragedy to Tiananmen Square, and he helped launch news network CNN as its chief anchor. While serving in the Marine Corps from 1959 to 1963, Shaw introduced himself to CBS News correspondent Walter Cronkite, declaring his intention to join Cronkite at CBS in the future. The respected anchorman began his career in Chicago at WNUS-TV, then later joined CBS News and ABC News, becoming his Capitol Hill senior correspondent. Shaw retired from CNN in 2001, after being the face of the cable network since its inception in 1980. During that time, he commanded the anchor desk and boldly steered the national conversation, even when taking on position of adversity. He is also remembered for his live reporting on the 1991 Gulf War. Shaw moderated the October 2000 vice presidential debate between Dick Cheney and Joe Lieberman. From 1992 until his retirement, Shaw anchored CNN's Inside Politics. I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, a Black History Month salute to former CNN news anchor Bernard Shaw in Black America. I left uh, ABC because uh, something called Cable News Network was starting up, and they asked me uh, if I was interested in becoming the principal Washington anchor for CNN, and because uh, a dear friend of mine, George Watson, who was uh, an ABC bureau chief and is now ABC Washington bureau chief, had come over here temporarily to start up this bureau. Because George was here, I, I came on board. And Dan Shore, whom I used to work with at CBS, he was here, and I felt that was good enough reason to, to join CNN. Bernard Shaw was a tough anchor at CNN for more than 20 years until he retired in 2001. He described himself as a straight-laced, old-fashioned kind of journalist who sticks to the facts. He reported on the Jonestown Massacre and on the pro-democracy demonstration in Tiananmen Square. He interviewed Saddam Hussein and reported from Iraq during the first Gulf War, giving minute-by-minute accounts of the bombing. He moderated presidential as well as vice presidential debates. Shaw was born in 1940, and he grew up in Chicago on the South Side. He learned to read when he was three and a half years old, he attended the University of Illinois at Chicago from 1963 to 1968. He worked at CBS News and ABC News before joining CNN in 1980. Back when Shaw began his journalism career, there was absolutely no African-American correspondence at the major networks. Throughout his 20-year career at CNN, he racked up major journalism awards, including the Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Association of Black Journalists. In spring of 1985, In Black America traveled to Washington, D.C. to speak with Bernard Shaw. It was all intentional. I 
wanted to do what I'm doing ever since I was 13, growing up in Chicago. Edward R. Murrow of CBS fame was my idol. He was the kind of journalist, the kind of interviewer, the kind of uh, anchorman I wanted to be. And I felt that rather than major in journalism, I felt it was more important to get a perspective on this planet and how mankind has evolved, and I felt that history would be a good major for that. I knew that I could write and wanted to learn how to write better. I was in accelerated reading classes when I was going through the uh, Chicago public school system in, in uh, my hometown and uh, taking special writing courses, that kind of thing. So I always had the encouragement and the indication that if I pressed onward, I would develop further, so that's why I majored in history rather than uh, journalism. Assuming that the writing and, and getting little odd jobs and sweeping out radio stations and working at newspapers and what have you, that would come later as it did. Did you work in journalism? Why attending the University of Illinois? Why you pursuing a degree in history? I was somewhat, yes, I was somewhat of a freak. I uh, was working um, full-time at an all-news radio station, WNUS, Full-time? Full-time, and carrying uh, what we call the full boat. Uh, 14 hours in the quarter system at the University of Illinois. I almost had a nervous <laughs> breakdown a couple of times, but uh, the station was owned by a Texan, Gordon McClendon, and um, I would leave uh, the campus at 2 in the afternoon, and I would work uh, from 4 o'clock until midnight. And my off days were irregular. I think it was off uh, something like Tuesday or Wednesday, which is the worst time to be off. But uh, that was my career. That's what I wanted. The opportunity was there, and I just felt that I should make the sacrifices. I was working full-time at WNUS, and then I went to uh, the Marshall Field TV station in Chicago, WFLD, Channel 32. And in 1968, uh, I went to work for... Well, after 32, I went to work for Westinghouse Broadcasting in Chicago, WIND, which at that time was the best radio news department in the whole city. And as you and your listeners know, Chicago is a highly competitive news town uh, whose history goes back to the days of, well, even Hemingway used to be a reporter in Chicago. Ben Hecht, people like that, Sandy Van Oker, all of them have come out of the Chicago shop. I worked there, and um, Westinghouse in 68 uh, promoted me and transferred me here to Washington. I covered uh, the White House for a year, the last year of the uh, Johnson administration, uh, which meant a lot of commutes to Texas, to Austin and to San Antonio. I especially like Austin, came to know Austin because of the president going home on the weekends. In 71, CBS Network hired me here in Washington. I went to work for CBS and worked here in Washington as network correspondent for about six years. And after that, I'd always wanted to cover Latin America. It's my favorite place in this world outside the United States. And ABC News said, well, if you come to work for us, you can go down and be bureau chief and cover Latin America, which I did for three years. And I came back here in 1979, and uh, after doing some duty in the uh, Iranian hostage crisis, over in Tehran. I left uh, ABC because uh, something called Cable News Network was starting up, and they asked me uh, if I was interested in becoming the principal Washington anchor for CNN. And because uh, a dear friend of mine, George Watson, who was uh, an ABC bureau chief and is now ABC Washington bureau chief, had come over here temporarily to start up this bureau. Because George was here, I came on board 
and Dan Shore, whom I used to work with at CBS, he was here, and I felt that was good enough reason to, to join CNN. And uh, that's why we're sitting here in my office talking. You mentioned that you covered the White House. What was it like being a black reporter covering the White House for America? You could be a green reporter covering the White House, and it is an extraordinary experience. Um, Lyndon Johnson was a character, as you know, and everyone knows. He was uh, finishing out his term. He would not run again. But he still was a man who, who could draw a lot of interesting people around him and create news, as he did the last year. It was very interesting covering Lyndon Johnson. I think uh, the best reporters per beat are at the White House, regardless of whether they're wire service reporters, newspaper reporters, magazine reporters, radio reporters, or television reporters. The best, the cream of the crop, are there. And it was a challenge to, to be a part of that group and to compete with those people. And I never viewed myself as, and still don't, I regard myself as, as a reporter who happens to be black rather than a black reporter. Um, there were no problems. I, I encountered no problems because of color. There were times, though, when my color did um, play a role in, in, in perception or in people's reactions to me. Let me be more specific. Lyndon Johnson, the last six months of his administration, was the uh, guest of many people who wanted to say, thank you, Mr. President. We know you're leaving office. And there, there were a series of farewell parties that became very boring here in Washington because uh, that's all we did was go to parties to watch uh, the first couple being uh, feted by their friends. But one Friday night, he was invited up to New York, the Plaza Hotel, this beautiful, sumptuous ballroom. And he was being feted by all kinds of people. Uh, example, Lady Esther, she was there with all her diamonds. And this woman had at least, we estimated, uh, about $400,000 worth of gems on her neck and her, her ears and what have you. Uh, she had brought from one of her mansions these uh, silver urns, and there were 50 urns in that ballroom with peach-colored long-stem roses. And I'm, I'm giving you this kind of detail for a reason. People in, in, the, in the audience included people like Whitney Young of the Urban League and, and all kinds of leaders. Duke Ellington was there. Um, a lot of authors were there. Um, Ralph Allison was there, people from the arts, people from industry, the Fortune 500 board chairman were there. But I was a pool reporter, and a pool is uh, the group of reporters, a smaller group, uh, numbering not more than 10 people, who physically go where the president is, and they report on what the president does to the larger group of White House correspondents, because you can't have 150 people going everywhere. Well, I was a pool reporter. And it was clear that this night had a very strong civil rights theme. And the Secret Service had brought uh, Mrs. Johnson and the President to the entrance that they were going to take them through to get into the ballroom. And as I say, there was a strong civil rights theme that night. And uh, the President and, and Mrs. Johnson came up, and they were held by the Secret Service until they were getting ready to go through this curtain. 
which had not been parted yet. And I was standing there with my pencil and notepad. And the president reached out and touched me on the hand and said, it's good to see you again. And I, I, I know as a human being that he did that, one, because I was black and because of the emphasis that night. Uh, just a small thing. Uh, another thing was um, before uh, Johnson left office, I, I had occasion to be uh, in Richard Nixon's uh, White House. Uh, not before he left office, but when President Nixon was in, I was at the White House again on a temporary basis. And I remember we were summoned to the Oval Office, and when you go into the Oval Office, you try to get as close as you can to hear what the man is going to say. Because a lot of times when people are speaking in low voices in the Oval Office, you can't hear. So I skirted into the office and immediately went around the side of the desk, and I came up to the far uh, corner, left-hand corner of the desk, so that I was closest to the president. And the other reporters were, you know, elbowing and trying to get in closer. Well, the man just dropped a bombshell on us. He announced uh, 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 an appointment to the Supreme Court. And I think it was Judge Clement Hainsworth described him as a, a lawyer's lawyer and a judge's judge, that kind of thing. Well, as we all know, Mr. Hainsworth did not make it, and there was a lot of controversy. But uh, we had had indications that uh, Hainsworth might be might be a candidate for the highest court in the land. And there were some pieces that had been done in the, in the press. And uh, Mr. Hainsworth's background was not very conducive to what uh, black Americans would consider uh, a jurist who would have their best interests in heart. And as the president was praising his nominee, Mr. Hainsworth, professionally, my right hand was copying down every word, but my mind was thinking, Clement Hainsworth, Supreme Court Justice. And what I found very interesting, I was the only black person in the Oval Office, and I was standing as close to Richard Nixon as you and I are sitting. And the president never once looked at me, never once. Uh, it's the kind of thing that you certainly couldn't document in court. We human beings don't fool one another, right? It was a, a body English kind of thing. And uh, I know what was in the president's mind. I know why he did not look at me. I could not prove it. I just know it in instinctively. You've covered a lot of national events, the civil rights movement, Dr. King's assassination quite sure the march on Washington. Has the climate for black America, in your opinion, changed that greatly? I think it depends on the size of your pocketbook. I think it depends on your job, if you have a job. If you are educated, if you have a profession, I should think that uh, you have continued to do very well. But if you are not educated, if you are a black teenager who hasn't had a job in a long time, I don't see how you can say that things have improved. It depends on the size of your pocketbook and whether indeed you have a pocketbook. Being the major anchor for CNN here in Washington, 
Is it difficult for you to decide what should be the major story? Is the White House automatically the lead-in story in which you would have on a particular day? Are there other interests here in Washington that you may want America to know about? It's not difficult. To, Washington is the news capital of the world. It has a life all its own. And news stories, the leads of newscasts, are decided by the importance or the weight of the news, its importance. It could come out of the White House. The lead could be uh, the latest uh, consumer price index figures. The lead could be a State Department reaction, just a, a one-paragraph written statement put out in response to something that happened in the Kremlin. The lead could be uh, demonstrators, farmers, demonstrating on Pennsylvania Avenue and being uh, busted up by policemen. It all depends uh, on the weight of the story within the context of other stories that are happening not only here in Washington but across the country and around the world. And it is not, it is not a unilateral decision by me. I'm just one of, of many persons here at CNN. I do not make the final decision. And uh, generally, whatever story is, is decided uh, on, it gets a number one ranking or a number two or a number three ranking because of its importance within the context of the news flow. What type of effect did Watergate have on you reporting it and also seeing what it was doing to this country? That was the most frightening period I have known since being in Washington. And I've been here since 1968. Covering the Watergate story was totally exhausting. It was not a nine to five story. Example, one afternoon on a Saturday, I was assigned to cover the Reverend Carl McIntyre who was having a uh, big pro-America demonstration and a pro-Nixon demonstration on the uh, grounds of the Washington Monument. And this points up to other people. I'd like to say this to people who are interested in becoming reporters. I remember what Walter Cronkite told me when I was in the Marine Corps back in 1961, and he and I got together and we were talking. And he said, you should learn about any and everything, and you should always be alert. Okay, now we go back to the Washington Monument. I was covering this rally, and the producers in, on the CBS radio network had told me that they wanted a, a spot, as we call it. They wanted a spot or a report from me for two o'clock. So I covered uh, McIntyre for about uh, an hour and a half and I had enough and I started walking back towards the White House. I was going to file the report from the White House. That was the, uh, the nearest relay point that we had physically. And as I was walking back thinking about how I was going to write the lead, I got close to the White House drive, the South Drive going around the back of the White House. And I noticed this car, limousine, and um, I knew that the president, Richard Nixon, had all of the White House correspondents out in the Rose Garden for some kind of ceremony. That was the focus. That was what the White House wanted the press corps in the middle of Watergate to concentrate on, the White House press corps. So as I was walking towards the White House southwest gate to get in and write and file my report on McIntyre's demonstration, I noticed this car go by. The only thing I saw was the back of a guy's head in the back seat with a ball spot. And I thought, that's John Mitchell, the Attorney General. What is he doing going to the White House? 
And I started running. I got past the guards showing them my Secret Service pass and what have you, White House press pass. And they don't like you to run on the grounds of the White House. But I had to make certain that that indeed was John Mitchell. Because at that point in the Watergate story, there was a major controversy about Mitchell's involvement, whether he knew about the plumbers and certain things. Well, in effect, my senses told me that while Richard Nixon has the White House press corps in the Rose Garden, this guy, the Attorney General, is sneaking into the White House for an important meeting about Watergate. These were, you know, these were my theories in my mind. So I ran up the walk and I said, well, Bernie, you're not going to run 100 yards up there and look into this limousine. The guy will have gotten out and gone into the building. So I stopped. I planted my seat on the sidewalk, my feet on the sidewalk, and I waited to see who was getting out of this car. Indeed, the man got out, the, the uh, receding hairline, the pipe in the mouth. It was John Mitchell, and he went through a side door. I got into our booth at uh, the White House where Dan Rather and Bob Pierpoint normally work, and they were out in the White House Rose Garden, and uh, I called the assignment desk, and I said, I, I will do my report on Carl McIntyre, but guess who just sneaked into the White House? John Mitchell. Pandemonium broke out in our bureau. We said, forget about Carl McIntyre. We assigned a courier to watch Mitchell's limousine. We had to find out where he was going. Well, the courier followed this limousine once it left the White House to National Airport. Meanwhile, we asked Ron Ziegler, we went to him privately and said, is the Attorney General in Washington, is the Attorney General here in the White House? would not confirm or deny that the Attorney General's at the White House. The courier told us that he was getting on a shuttle to New York. Daniel Shore and I raced to the National Airport, got on the same plane, we got on a plane with a crew, and once we were airborne, we walked up and said, we don't want to annoy you or disrupt your flight to New York, but we would like to talk to you. And he promised that he would talk to us in New York at LaGuardia. And we got off the plane between Shore and I asking him about 15 questions. That's all he would take. It was clear to us that there was a major meeting at the White House. And he said that when his time came to testify, he would testify and he would be cooperating with the Watergate prosecutor. I didn't mean to take so much time. Go ahead. But my point was that as a reporter, the slightest thing can be the tip of an iceberg of a major story. And by seeing this ball spot in the back of the head, by knowing who the Washington heavies are, which is your responsibility, there was nothing profound that I did, I was merely doing my job. CBS at that time, we were able to get a major story which led our show that night. Wires were moving bulletins and uh, the newspapers picked it up. But it was a major development at that point during the Watergate story, an indication of how exhausting it was. You know, from walking across the south side of the White House, I ended up in New York that night and came back down on the shuttle with Roger Mudd, uh, who was doing the show that night. Uh, about I, I think I got to bed around 1 in the morning, one Sunday morning, but that's an indication of how involved uh, the Watergate story was. Having worked at three major networks, are the news operations that different from network to network? No, and um, 
a lot of your listeners will say, well, he's, he's right. How many of us have w had occasion to, to look at one network's news program and switch the channel and see the same story? Well, people cover the news uh, generally the same way, aside from what we call enterprise reporting, where you dig and dig and only your listeners in Austin or elsewhere, li people listening to the Longhorn Network, know about a certain story. But generally, uh, th there's no mystery about covering the news. You know that if the president's going to have a news conference, you're going to cover it, and you're going to report the major things out of it. Um, if uh, Mayor Washington in Chicago is having one of his typical fights with Alderman Edward Berdoliak, and suddenly they're going to have a major summit, you know that's going to be a major story that evening on the evening news, um, et cetera, et cetera. You, you do the obvious, you know? South Africa is a major issue here in Washington at the present time. How is CNN covering that? And are the real, true issues surrounding South Africa and the reason for the protests actually being known to the American public? Well, we're covering the story um, as best we can. Um, we thought it was very important that uh, our camera be outside the embassy when Stevie Wonder was arrested. We felt it was important to report that, along with other people who have been arrested, uh, members of Congress, what have you. Uh, the story is not just, out, of course, outside the embassy grounds. We have had the ambassador in on our extended half-hour and hour programs. We've interviewed the ambassador. We've had reports out of Johannesburg. We've had um, listeners who, uh, viewers who've called in and expressed their opinions about South Africa. Um, in covering the South Africa story, as far as CNN is concerned, it's important to be balanced and to be fair. And that's what we've sought to do. Two-part question. Your duties and responsibility here at CNN, and how do you go about preparing your nightly newscasts? Well, my responsibilities basically are to hang loose. I'm, I'm the principal Washington anchor man, which means I'm on call 24 hours a day. Um, example, when the... Uh, savage murder of more than 200 American servicemen occurred in Beirut, mm -hmm. guys who were sleeping in their racks over there. Uh, when that happened, when in a short while of its happening, Daniel Shore and I were walking into this bureau at uh, quarter of five Sunday morning, and we didn't leave until later that afternoon when the president was shot at by John W. Hinckley here in Washington. We had just carried Mr. Reagan's address to this labor group live, so we were right back there. I didn't get out of the anchor chair until 10 o'clock that night uh, when Air Florida Flight 90 crashed into the Potomac and to the 14th Street Bridge here in Washington. Again, I was on the air eight and nine hours. So when major stories occur, my responsibility is to be on call and to be ready and be prepared to come in to help cover them. Preparing for the evening news starts early in the morning. Retired renowned television journalist Bernard Shaw. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future in Black America programs, 
Email us at jhanson at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at kut.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm John L. Hansen, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.